Oh, and I invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, which again may, may not be on page 911. But we heard our last time in Acts how Peter and John healed a man who was lame from birth. And now in our text this morning, Peter is going to preach in light of this miracle. But before we hear God's word, let us once again ask God to illuminate his word to us. For apart from the Spirit's work of illumination, we won't understand, we won't believe, we won't have the power to obey what we hear. So let us ask for God's power and strength. Father, as we just sung, our entire life, our salvation, our eternal destiny depends on your sustaining power. If you don't hold us, we are lost. And so we plead with you based on the merit of Jesus Christ that you would use your word now as that holding, sustaining power. Direct our minds and our hearts to Jesus. For He is our rock and our salvation. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear God's Word to you right now from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While He, that's the man who's just been healed, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word of our God. In the previous verses, Peter performs a great sign. By God's power, he makes a man who had been born unable to walk, not just walk, but leap. The sign was clearly significant. The sign was also clearly not sufficient. The sign amazed the people. But the sign didn't save the people. And so we're reminded that Christianity is a phenomenon. It's not just a philosophy. It's a phenomenon. It is a transformation. It is an experience. But it's not a self-interpreting experience. It needs to be explained. And so our good works in the world, our acts of love, of kindness, of forgiveness, generosity, justice, and service are necessary, but they don't save anybody. Our works support our witness in the world, but they aren't the substance of our witness in the world. We saw in Acts chapter 2 that the people witnessed a supernatural phenomenon. They heard the disciples speaking in foreign languages that they had never learned and they understood them. But the people didn't experience this phenomenon and immediately praise God and put their faith in Jesus Christ for their sins. Again, they were amazed by what they experienced, but they were also confused. They had to ask What does this mean? And so Peter stood up, he interpreted, and he explained the phenomenon, teaching them about the life, the death, 
the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, teaching them about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the need to respond to this with faith and repentance. And it was only then that 3,000 people were saved. The exact same pattern is happening here in Acts chapter 3. There is an event. Peter and John heal a man lame from birth. And once again, the people are really amazed. They think this is really impressive. But they're not saved because they don't understand what the sign means. Peter asks in verse 12, Why do you wonder at this? Meaning the sign has left them wondering but not yet believing. So Peter again takes time to interpret and explain the sign. And this is actually the pattern we see throughout the entire book of Acts. A significant event happens, but then it requires an explanation. This is because Christianity is miraculous, but the miracle stands upon a particular message. The experience requires an explanation. So throughout Acts, it is the word preached, not just the works performed, that change hearts and turn the world upside down. And again, this is important to recognize because sometimes as Christians, we think I will make a difference in the world simply by living as a good Christian. We think I'll witness by my life and by my deeds. I'll show people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now obviously, we ought to live good Christian lives. We ought to serve others. And our good works, our Christian lives, should invite attention. People should notice it. But that attention will then invite questions. You remember what Peter says elsewhere in his first New Testament letter. He tells Christians to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that we have. Which again implies our Christian hope will be visible. People are going to see a difference. But it also implies once again that we're going to need to explain this to people. It's a miracle, but it's also a message. And so this morning, I want to take a few minutes with you to consider the Christian message, generally speaking. Most of the particulars in Peter's sermon, we've dealt with already in the book of Acts. So we're going to take more of a a bird's eye view here. And we're going to consider three characteristics of the Christian message that are clear in Peter's explanation. And the first characteristic is that the Christian message always exalts the person of Jesus Christ. 
All man-made religions are man-centered. Christianity, Christ-centered. Man-made religions are man-exalting. Christianity is Christ-exalting. So just look at how Peter and John respond to this situation. Luke says that the man they healed is clinging to them, which is obvious. He's so thankful for what just happened through them. Luke says that all the people in the temple who are witnessing this, they start running to Peter and John. And they're probably telling other people around the temple what's happening. Everybody is running to Peter and John. Peter even notes everybody is, is fixated on, the, everybody's staring at them. Because clearly, people are impressed with Peter and John. You would be too if you saw someone heal a man who was born unable to move. They're probably thinking, these guys must be pretty special. <laughs> they must be pretty powerful. They must be pretty righteous if they can do these kinds of miracles. But what does Peter do? he immediately deflects that attention away from himself and from John. He says in verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety? Just think piety, our religious actions and, and movements. As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Now let's be honest. Even the, the most shy person among us likes some positive attention. We want people to think we're pretty special. We're good at what we do. Not Peter and John. While all other religions and philosophies will exalt man's will, man's capabilities, man's works, Christianity doesn't. Now, Christianity doesn't degrade humanity. The Christian faith is actually the foundation for understanding human worth and dignity because it is the Bible that teaches us that every single one of us are made in the very image of God. But Christianity doesn't hold up man as the center of existence. So, kids, you've probably learned or you soon will learn about our solar system. What is the center, so to speak, of our solar system? What does everything revolve around? You can say it. The sun. Very good. I knew you guys had learned this. But did you know that for a long time, people thought everything revolved around the earth? That the earth was the center of the universe. Now, if we get that wrong, 
then we're going to get a lot of things wrong about how, how our world and our solar system work. We're going to be very confused if we think the earth is the center instead of the sun. And the same is true for our lives. If we think that we are the center of the world, if everything revolves around us and our felt needs and hopes and desires, we're going to get very confused about the world and about our own lives. We're not going to understand why the world works the way that it does. We're not going to be able to understand our own experiences. We won't know how to live. But Christianity teaches us that we are not the center. We are not the main character in the story. We are significant because God made us. God loves us. God saves us. But we're not primary. And I actually believe this is a wonderfully freeing revelation. It means everything does not depend on you. Your life, your salvation, your future, your friends, your family, it doesn't all depend on you. It doesn't depend on your power. It doesn't depend on your piety. You are not Atlas bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders. But we often feel like we are. Not everything though, not even our own soul is borne up on our shoulders. Not one of us could possibly bear that weight. Freedom, therefore, is found in self-forgetfulness. Happiness is found in humility. Which I, I love how Tim Keller always defined humility not as thinking less of yourself, but as thinking of yourself less. I'm convinced that the happiest people on earth are the people who think about themselves the least. Because we get consumed with protecting ourselves. And the more we seek to protect ourselves, the more we imprison ourselves within the walls of self-centeredness and self-pity. You've, you've probably experienced this in yourself and in others. When we get preoccupied with our rights, with our reputation, with our protection, with our provision, with needing people to acknowledge our worth, our abilities, what happens? We become isolated. We become suspicious of everybody around us. We become angry, bitter, and defensive. We keep others at an arm's length. And when we think of our friends, of our families, of our churches, and we start to think, well, it, it all depends on me, then we very quickly collapse under the pressure. 
We start to feel like Moses when Israel was fighting the Amalekites and Moses had to keep his arms outstretched. And as long as they were up, Israel was winning. If they started to droop, Israel would lose. And we all know if the war depends on us, it's going to be lost. But Christianity wonderfully reminds us it's not actually about our strength. It's not about our power. It's not even about our piety. It's not about how well we do the the Christian faith. We don't uphold the world. We don't even uphold ourselves. Which is why Peter says, why are you looking at us? What just happened? It's not about us. So who is it about? Who is the center around which every soul orbits? Who's the main character in the world's story? Peter tells us. It's Jesus Christ. And if kids, if you you don't get anything else out of today's sermon, just get this. You do not exist for you. Everything that happens is is not about you. It's about Jesus. That's what Peter wants us to understand. Jesus is the only one who can bear the weight of the world and of our salvation. Praise be to God, we live in a Christ-centered universe. He made it. He upholds it. He redeems it. He rules it. The Christian message exalts Christ because Christ is the heart of the message. He's the message because of who He uniquely is and of what He has uniquely done. So who is He? Peter gives us several wonderful descriptions of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's glorified servant. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He is the firstborn that God raised from the dead. He is the name of salvation. He is the appointed Savior. He is the restoration of the world. He is the true prophet revealing truth. He is the fulfillment and source of every covenant blessing. Peter packs a lot into this sermon. And what has Jesus uniquely done? He died on the cross as God's suffering servant for sin. He rose again for the justification and forgiveness of God's people. He revealed who God is and spoke all truth. He accomplished and fulfilled all of God's purposes and promises. So again, when we ask Why does the world exist? Why do I exist? What is it all about? Christianity answers, it is all about Christ. The world exists for Him. We exist for Him. Think of Paul's words to the Colossians. He says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, All things were created through Him and for Him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Doesn't that just want to make you sigh with relief? He holds it all together. It all depends on him. It's all for him. I don't have to bear that weight. Christianity exalts the person of Christ so that the world will look to and come to Christ. And Jesus does indeed call us, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. All of you atlases out there who think it all depends on you. Jesus says, you, you just come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hope you hear Jesus speaking this morning, saying, stop trying to bear the weight of the world, of your soul, of your salvation, of your family, of your future, of your friends, of your church. Stop trying to bear that weight and come to me. You can't bear it. Jesus says, I can. When we follow Jesus, the world should notice and look at us, but when it does, we immediately say, why are you looking at me? It's not about me. Let me redirect you to the one who it is all about. And when we redirect our gaze and there to the center, to the blazing sun who is Jesus Christ, we find our salvation, for salvation is by faith in his name alone, as Peter says in verse 16. The Christian message exalts the person of Christ. Number two, the Christian message exposes the presence of sin. See, we don't merely come to Jesus to find relief from our suffering. Sometimes that's the way that we articulate the gospel. It's just, Jesus understands you. Jesus will just rub your back and help you feel better. No, we, we come to Jesus to find forgiveness for sin. See, coming to Jesus means repenting and turning from our sin to trust in Jesus. So we can't actually understand Christianity if we don't understand sin. We won't come to Jesus until we hate our sin. So Peter, just like he did in Acts chapter 2, exposes sin. He confronts the Jews with delivering Jesus over to unjust men. He confronts them with denying Jesus as the Holy and Righteous One. He confronts them with exchanging Jesus for a murderer. He confronts them with killing Jesus on the cross. This wouldn't be a very popular message today. 
to come before thousands of people and say, here's all the ways you really messed up. We don't want to hear that. But it shows us that sin is ultimately unbelief. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ and all that results from that rejection. You see, every particular sin in that moment is denying who Jesus is and it is rejecting what Jesus has done. Peter also helps us to see that in that moment, what is happening when, when we choose to, to give in to sin, we are preferring something else to Jesus. See, Peter says the Jews wanted to receive a murderer instead of receiving Jesus. He's talking about when Pilate said, I'll, I'll release a prisoner for you today. Because Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he knew Jesus was innocent. But the Jews cried out, no, we want Barabbas, who was a revolutionary and a murderer. They wanted something else. And if we're honest, the same is often true for us. Now we might say, I, I would never ask to have a murderer instead of Jesus. But are there things that you would gladly receive instead of Jesus if it was offered to you? I want us to just think for a moment. I, I spent some time this week asking myself these questions and... It led to a lot of confession. What if you were offered a life, an entire life, entirely free from any kind of physical pain, instead of Jesus? Would you take that offer? What if you were offered great beauty and intelligence instead of Jesus? Would you take that offer? What if you were offered financial security for all of your days? Not one day where you ever had to worry about money and you never uh, had trouble affording what you wanted instead of Jesus. Would you take that offer? What if you were offered success, fame, respect, where everybody openly acknowledged you, appreciated you, and praised you instead of Jesus? Would you take that offer? What if you were offered a life without fear of loss? That you and your loved ones would never get sick, would never get hurt, you'd never lose them instead of Jesus. Would you take that offer? What if you were offered a life with a perfect marriage instead of Jesus? Would you take that offer? At the end of the day, what if you were offered this life with no suffering instead of Jesus? How would we respond? Because the reality is we cannot have Christ and a cross-free life. Because when we come to Christ, He commands us to take up our cross. Christianity is the ultimate answer to our suffering, 
But freedom from suffering is a future promise, not a now promise. The call of Christ is not first, come to me and I'll take away all of your pain. You see in verses 20 and 21, Peter speaks of times of refreshing and restoring, but he says that that's going to happen later. Jesus is in heaven right now. The, the refreshing, refreshing and restoring, that'll come when Jesus returns. Yes, it's begun now, but it will only be, be completed then. The promise now that Peter holds out to the people is the forgiveness of their sins which is a far greater promise because that's a far greater need. So we have to be careful that we don't hear the gospel saying, I know you're tired, I know you're weak, I know you're sad, I know you're scared, and I've got an immediate cure for all of that. That's what cults teach. It's not what Christianity teaches. The gospel says you are a sufferer, but you're also a sinner who has been separated separated from God and under His wrath, for that we have an immediate cure. His name is Jesus Christ. So the Christian message exposes the presence of our sin so that we will hate it and flee from it to Christ, which is why in this sermon Peter again calls them to repentance, turning from sin, turning from wickedness to faith in Christ. And he says, if we do that, Jesus will blot out every sin. Christianity exalts the person of Christ and it exposes the presence of, Christ, of sin. Third and finally, the Christian message evinces the power of grace. Evinces just means evidences. It reveals the power of grace grace. So Peter preaches salvation as he directs the hearers away from any thought of personal power or piety to the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, don't look at, to us or to yourself for salvation. Look to Jesus by faith, which means he is explaining the reality of grace, that justification is by Faith in Christ, not our good works. That repentance is trusting in God's grace and not in reward for our effort. But even this is just an acknowledgement that everything is by grace. For you notice in verse 26 that it says, God raised Jesus from the dead. God sent Jesus. And it's God who turns us from our weak wickedness. So it's, it's all His work. It's all His grace. And so the Christian message proclaims this grace, but at the very same time, it, it shows, it evidences this grace. And by that, I mean that the one preaching is himself the proof of what is preached. So just think for a minute of who's preaching. Not me, but in Acts 3. It's Peter. Now who's Peter? Who is this guy? 
Well, this man who is humbly deflecting attention away from himself, from his power and piety, is the very same man who you read about in the gospel accounts who at one time was arguing with the other disciples about who was the greatest among them. This humble man is the very same man who actually elevated himself, his power, his piety above the other disciples when he said to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. I'm stronger. I've got more faith. Don't worry, Jesus. And he's the very same man who thought he knew better than Jesus when Jesus talks about his suffering, the necessity of him going to the cross, and Peter says, Jesus, you're crazy. That'll never happen to you. That's the same guy who's here saying, It's not my power, it's not my piety. And this man who is boldly proclaiming and identifying with Jesus Christ before thousands in Acts 2 and in Acts chapter 3 is the very same man who when one little servant girl said, wait, don't you know Jesus? Said, nope, never heard of him. When Peter talks about denying the holy and righteous one, he was the first one to deny that holy and righteous one. So when Peter proclaims this grace and says, your sins can be blotted out. They can be obliterated. He stands there as the living evidence of that powerful grace. And so when we explain the grace of Jesus Christ, we should be speaking from experience. We announce its power as we have been clothed in its power. Those of you who are members here, you, you know my affection for John Newton. He was a God-cursing, slave-trading scoundrel who God rescued from the fires of hell and made a humble parish pastor. And Newton never ceased to be amazed by this grace of God towards him, which is why he wrote a song about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Newton also once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's what our lives display as our tongues declare the grace of Jesus Christ. The Christian message works the miracle of grace within us. And so this is the Christian message. Exalting Christ, exposing sin, evincing grace. And so as we've heard, it's not about us. The, the story is way too big 
to be about us. If you take time to to work through every phrase Peter says, he's often alluding to, to Old Testament Scriptures. And in this way, he shows that he's speaking of a God and of a salvation that looks back thousand years, thousands of years, even as it looks forward into eternity. So this story is about the God of all history and all eternity. And we're just a blip on that historical radar. And yet, by God's grace, we are part of this story. For the God of all history and of all eternity is also revealed as a personal God who cares about individual people. I just want you to notice in closing how Peter introduces this God that he reveals. He reveals him as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now he has several reasons why he introduces God this way, especially because he's preaching to Jews and he's trying to connect them to their own history. But I just want to highlight this one implication, which is that God knows He saves, He cares for, and He calls His people by name. It is a personal salvation as much as it is a corporate salvation. And the good news of the gospel that Peter preaches here is that this God, this great big God, is your personal God by faith. This Christ can be your Christ. Because we don't just come to Christ as a nameless, faceless sea of people. We come to Christ trusting in His name because He called us by our name. The people were amazed. They were utterly astounded because they saw a lame man leap. How much more amazed and utterly astounded should we be that the eternal God who created the universe chose us, sent His Son to die for us, appointed His Son as our salvation, has forgiven us, turned us from our wickedness, and called us by our name. And He did all of this because He wanted to bless us. So the Christian message is not about us, but thankfully it is for us. It's not for our glory, but it is for our blessing. Christ receives all the glory, we just receive all the blessing. And He is worth all of the crosses that we must bear to follow and be with Him. The time of refreshing is coming. But until that day, let us embody the miracle as we explain the message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to exalt your Son before us that you would lead us into the joyful freedom of 
humble self-forgetfulness. That you would continue to expose our sin that we might turn from it and swim in the ocean of your grace. Help us to proclaim grace. Help us to show grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.